0: Well, hello, and welcome to Ridge Church Online. Uh, My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to be with you this morning as we carry on in our series in the book of Romans. Now, in the early 1900s, around 1910, there's a story that's been told a lot uh, about the newspaper in the city of London in England, um, putting out this question and asking a number of famous authors and theologians and and influencers of that day to answer this question, what is wrong with the world? And no matter who you are, you've asked versions of that question, whether it's been when you've watched the news and seen the tragedies that happen around our world, whether from natural disasters or man-made chaos, whether it's looking at issues in your workplace or your family or your city that you live in, you've asked the question, what is going on? What is wrong with the world? How could things be so broken? Why don't things seem to be getting better? For all our technology, for all our advancements, for all our so-called progressiveness, things still seem bad. And each one of us has different answers, right? Well, if this political party was in power or if this political party wasn't, well, if the people down the street would change, well, if the church could just get this figured out, well, if people wouldn't do this thing that I wish that they wouldn't do, if we could just get rid of fill in the blank with whatever it is that you personally dislike. And so the paper in the 1910 sends out potentially this letter to all these people asking them to respond to this question, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, a theologian and a Christian writer, as the story goes, wrote back with a very simple letter. He said this, dear sir, I am yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton, who would go on to write a book of essays by the same title, What Is Wrong With The World, seemed not to look outside of himself, not to look at what was happening around him, not to look even at his circumstances or the sins of others, but rather within himself to find what was most broken in the world. Or as modern American poet puts it, hi, it's me, I'm the problem, it's me. That's Taylor Swift, if you're not familiar. And see, there seems to be this ability that we have to almost jokingly or, or with a wink, point at the brokenness in the world and go, I know that I'm actually the problem. I know that I actually bring some of the issues to the table. And, and on the surface level, most of us can laugh at this kind of self-deprecation, right? But even for those of us who follow Jesus, even for those of us who would read statements like this and agree with them on a theological level, I realize that what is most broken in the world is me and my sin. It doesn't often play itself out that way when we actually engage in our families, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our relationships with our friends or more specifically our enemies. How often do we actually approach the issues in our life with the understanding or the thought process that I potentially or maybe even likely am the problem? What is wrong with the world? What is wrong with my life isn't out there, but in here. And as we carry on in this series that we've been walking through called Sin, we're looking at the first three chapters of Romans and its impact on the world. How has sin impacted the world? And what we're going to see is what Paul has kind of started with is an introduction to this idea that he wants to paint the picture of what God has done in the world. We're going to see him begin his explanation of the gospel. But what he's going to do is offend us and push our buttons and make us feel really uncomfortable. Last week, we looked at Paul's beautiful and well-known proclamation from the beginning of the book of Romans. In verse 15, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul's um, immediate desire, his goal, is to tee up what he's going to talk about, which is really, really simple, the gospel. What the book of Romans is, particularly the first half of it, is a breakdown and almost a court legal style exposition to talk about what the gospel is all about, which begs the question, why would Paul feel the need to make that statement? I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says. Because he knows that what he is about to say is going to cut us like a knife against the grain of everything that makes us feel secure and safe. He's going to write things in the next number of chapters and verses that to our modern Western minds in particular seem unloving and unkind and harsh and mean and downright angry. But Paul is not seeking to cut us as an attacker or a thief, but much like a good surgeon, Paul is digging into our bodies for the sake of our own good. What he is going to do is show us that there is something broken. There is something sick within us that requires surgery. We'd expect Paul's introduction to his gospel to be one that's cozy and nice and inoffensive. But like a good doctor, Paul is not consent today, content to say, it'll probably be fine. Can you imagine you went to the doctor and you sat down with him and you had done some tests and something wasn't feeling quite right and something wasn't going well. And the doctor goes, ah, you'll probably be fine. It's probably gonna be okay. Don't worry about it. Don't think about it. Try to just ignore what's not working, ignore what's broken, ignore what feels sick, and hopefully it goes away in a few days. No, Paul is not content. He's a good doctor who wants to diagnose the problem. So how does Paul begin to talk about the gospel? Here's what he says in Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, Paul has clearly never taken a public speaking class. If he had, he would know that you're supposed to open a speech. You're supposed to open an explanation. You're supposed to open a sermon with a catchy hook or a fun story or something to get people invested, maybe a joke, whatever it may be. But what does Paul open with? He goes straight for the throat and he begins with, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's his opening line. That's the opening place he begins. And why would Paul begin here? Because he is aware. He is aware that until we understand the bad news, until we understand our sickness, until we understand our sin and our brokenness, the good news of the gospel isn't going to mean very much at all. When I was a kid, I loved gummy vitamins. You probably did too. Depending on the area you grew up, they might've been Flintstones gummy vitamins. Now, if I look back, I loved eating those gummy vitamins, but I had no idea what they did. And I remember when I was 19 years old, I was engaged and I I was walking through the store and I was working a job and I had a little bit of money. I paid my rent, I paid for my groceries and I saw Flintstones vitamin gummies. And I remember being so excited with my little bit of extra pocket money. What I did is I bought those vitamin gummies and I thought to myself, this is great. I'm taking vitamins. I didn't read the label. I had no idea what was in it. I really just wanted the gummies. But the last number of years, what I've learned and realized is that kids' Flintstone gummy vitamins are not all that helpful to me. There is supplements that I can take if you're iron deficient or if you take vitamin D like many of us do to live in the lower mainland in this time of year when it's gray almost every day. To understand the impact a vitamin or a supplement or a medicine has on you requires that you understand the issue that it's trying to deal with. And Paul keeps using this word gospel in Romans 1, which many of us, if we're listening, already know what it means. What does gospel mean? It means good news. It comes from the Greek word euangelion, which is two words put together, eu, which is good, and angelion, which is announcement. The gospel, as Paul describes it, is a good announcement. But to understand, to open, to get context for a good announcement requires that we understand where it comes from. I remember uh, a while back, we were home, we were visiting family over Christmas and um, my dad and I are both big sports fans, but I primarily follow the English Premier League, which means I follow soccer, which means I wake up early in the morning to watch a team called Tottenham um, that never does very well, but I always wake up to watch them. But my dad follows the NBA and the NHL and, and the sports that are kind of more popular here in Canada. And we were there over Christmas and my team had a game against the top team in the league and they were battling for a spot in the Champions League. And it was this very, very important game. And towards the end of the game, my team was down by one. And I was sitting watching the game quietly. And and at one point, my team scores to tie the game. And there's this eruption I have because I'm so excited because this is the moment. This is the excitement. I cannot believe my team has made the comeback against a team they had no right to even be in conversation with. And I remember my dad being confused. What's going on? It's 9 a.m. I don't get it. He just scored a goal. I watched the NBA, people score buckets the whole game long. Why is this one goal such a big deal? Well, my dad couldn't understand because he didn't have all the context. And the reason Paul begins with the bad news is he wants us to understand the context. He wants us to understand what the good news is. So he has to begin with the bad. And he starts with this, the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Now, there's a statement we don't say much. When we do say it or when we do hear it, it tends to be associated with some things that aren't so nice. And now now when you think about the word wrath, what actually comes into your mind? Depending on how you grew up, depending on the nature of your family of origin, depending on what your experience in life has been, maybe you have a very clear picture of wrath. Maybe it was a parent who would fly off the handle when you made a mistake. Maybe it's a boss who even to this day, you're scared to be around because you don't know what that wrath will be if you didn't do your job properly. Maybe it's a coach. Maybe it's even a spouse and there's been issues in your marriage. Maybe you have a picture of wrath in your mind. Then when I say that God has a wrath, we start to place our understanding of wrath onto God. We start to take our understanding of anger and wrath and judgment, and we place it on God. And we start to look at verses like these and sections of the Bible like these and start to say, God seems really angry. Why is he so grumpy? Why is he so moody? Why does it seem like God could fly off the handle and just destroy people if they don't do it right? But as theologian John Stott points out in his commentary on this passage, the wrath of God is totally different from human anger. It does not mean that God loses his temper or flies into a rage or is malicious or spiteful or vindictive. The alternative to wrath is not love, but neutrality. God is not neutral towards evil. God's wrath is his holy hostility towards evil. It is his refusal to condone or come to terms with and his just judgment upon it. You need to understand today, God's wrath is not like ours. God's wrath flows out of God's character which is one of holiness and perfection and goodness and kindness. God's wrath does not come when God gets moody. God's wrath comes upon evil because God cares about justice. And so that leads us and it leads Paul in this passage to ask the question, why does God have wrath? Well, he gives four reasons through the first few verses. First of all, Paul points to God has wrath because we have suppressed the truth. Verse 18, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their righteousness suppress the truth. Now, even if you don't personally use this language, you know what suppression of the truth looks like, right? It's the understanding of the way things are, of the truth of a matter, of the reality of something, and then the conscious decision to ignore it. It is the abandonment of what is right, not based on logic, but on emotion, this doesn't feel right. So I'm going to bend in what I know is true. It is lying in order to get what we want. It is hiding in order to protect our insecurities. It is suppressing the truth, Paul says, that is the beginning of the breakdown of our lives. Why? Because God is the central truth of the universe. How does God's word begin? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Before all things, God. Before all was created, before there was you or me or society, God. God is preeminent. He has always existed and always will exist. In the beginning, God created. And if God made it, he owns it. An artist holds authority over the art which they have created. But you might say, not everyone has read the Bible. Not everyone of Paul's hearers or even us today are Jewish people who have an understanding of Yahweh enlightened with the Israelite views on who God is and how God created the world. And Paul in this section is actually writing specifically to Gentile people. He's not yet writing to the Jewish people. He's writing to the Gentiles, those who did not have the Old Testament those who had maybe never even heard about who God was or what God was like. But what Paul points to is the second piece, the second reason God has wrath is because we have ignored revelation. Verse 19, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, Paul writes, they are without excuse. In other words, Paul essentially says, look around. Look at the world that we live in. Look at the world that you inhabit and tell me that there's not an artist behind that. Tell me that there's not a creator. Watch a sunrise, or if you'd like sleeping in, watch a sunset. Stand atop a mountain and look at the area that we live in. Experience the joy of a great meal or time with friends, a good belly laugh. The best steak you've ever eaten. Share a hug with a good friend. Have a conversation with someone about something you care about over a cup of incredible pour-over coffee that's been brewed exactly right. And the inevitable conclusion that ought to come to our minds is that there is more than randomness to the universe. That our lives are not an accident. That what you and I have to live for has deeper purpose than just pleasure and joy for ourselves that when we look at the world and experience the world, we cannot deny that there is a God out there. Or as one author, Norman Geisler put it, I don't think I have enough faith to be an atheist. I don't have enough faith to look at the world around me and conclude that it's just random that there's no purpose, there's no meaning. I'm just a mash of atoms that happen to have found their way together to be a living organism on this planet that happens to have air and happens to have the sun at the right location. I'm just a random happenstance and a blip in the universe that doesn't matter. I don't have enough faith to believe that. And now what's important for us to understand is that what Paul's speaking to here is one of two types of revelation. What Paul's talking about here is what's called general revelation. Psalm 19 captures this the best. Here's what it says. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words and no sound is heard from them yet. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. See what Paul is saying there? There is something about the way that things are, the nature and beauty of the world that should draw us to the reality that there is a God. But secondly, there's special revelation. And this is important to understand the difference. Special revelation is how God has revealed himself in specific ways. We consider the word of God to be a piece of his special revelation. The primary thing we believe to be the special revelation of God is Jesus himself. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is God's ultimate picture of us. General revelation shows us that there is a God. Special revelation shows us what that God is like. What Paul is trying to point out here is that we are, as he puts it, without excuse to look at creation and say, I am not interested in its creator leads us into the third aspect aspect of why God's wrath exists and its entitlement. Verse 21, for although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They did not honor him. They did not give thanks to him. Have you ever met someone who's really entitled? I remember I grew up on the Harry Potter films and there's a scene in the first film where uh, Harry is like locked in a closet and all this thing and it's Christmas or a birthday or something like that. And he's got this cousin Dudley, who's like the most entitled character you've ever seen. And he comes out on his birthday and, and, he, and he starts counting all his presents. And I can remember the line where he gets upset and he says, how many presents are there? And his dad says, oh, there's 36. I counted them myself. And his response to 36 gifts that have been given to him is to look at his dad and say, 36? Last year there were 37. What are you doing only giving me 36 gifts? I had 37 last year and the dad panics and wants to go buy him another gift. And it's all this thing, it's this entitlement. And see, the ultimate offense of our sin is not simply that we were bad. It is that we have begun to take advantage of what's been created, not by us. See, in Genesis, God created Adam and Eve to partner with him. To participate in the creation project by creating culture, by being fruitful and multiplying, to rule over creation, to care for the garden. What was their sin? They began to think it was their own. We don't need God. We don't want him as a partner. We will take care of this on our own. I don't want you, God. I just want your stuff. I'll take creation and I'll take the beauty of the world and I'll take breath in my lungs and relationships with other human beings and the gift that life itself is. I want that, but leave me alone. Like the prodigal son in Luke 15, who says to his father, give me my inheritance that I may go essentially wishing him dead. We want what God has to offer us, but not God himself. And that leads us to the fourth and final kind of piece of why God has wrath. We have exchanged the truth for a lie. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And so just like Adam and Eve, tricked by the thought of being without need for God, wondering if perhaps we're better off on our own. Maybe God is holding out on us. We claim that we are wise and we can handle it ourselves. But Paul says, no, we're simply acting like fools. Paul points to the irony that the very things that God has created, that have been created for us to partner with him in ruling over have become the very things that we worship. The things that have become, or the things that are created have become what we worship as if they were the creator, whether that's a golden calf, or an ancient deity, or an iPhone, or a MacBook, or a four bedroom house with a walk in closet and an ensuite and a backyard for the kids to play, a number mark in our bank account, or a certain number of followers on social media. Here's my question for you today What lies are you believing? Where have you exchanged truth for a lie? Lies like I can handle it myself. I don't need God. Lies like I can keep my sin a secret. Nobody has to know I'll handle it on my own. Lies like I don't need anyone else. I'm fine by myself. Lies like I'll never be loved if they really knew what I was struggling with. So our invitation is to stop exchanging the truth for lies. Why? Because God loves us. And when we love someone, we want them to understand the truth, even if that truth is painful. As Brené Brown puts it, clarity is kindness, even when it hurts. Even if it's hard to hear, we need the truth because the wrath of God revealed is not from a lack of love but actually out of God's love. And the second part of Paul's breakdown moves from the why of God's wrath into what that wrath looks like. And again, we often have pictures of what this looks like, right? Maybe it's a lightning bolt from the sky. It's an earthquake. It's a fire. It's a natural disaster that happens somewhere else that we go, that is God judging another nation or another people because God is angry at them for how they have sinned. Maybe God will shout from the heavens to scare people into obedience. And if people were just afraid of God, then maybe they would obey him. But what does Paul say God's wrath looks like? Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up. God in his love for the people that he has created actually respects them enough to respect and honor their free will. His wrath, at least at this present moment, not forever, but at this present moment, looks far less like fiery destruction that we might picture and far more like taking his hands away from the wheel and allowing us to have control of our own lives. When I was younger and couldn't afford to take my car to an auto shop, all the time my dad would help me try to fix whatever issue was going on with my car. And I had a really terrible car, so there was often issues going on with my car. And I remember whenever I'd try to help him, my dad, who was a mechanic, who knows how to fix a car, would, would try to help me. And there'd be times where I'd wanna do it myself. And I remember at one point, my dad um, trying to help me with something and I was getting angry and kind of slamming on it. And I was actually gonna make the problem worse and, and break something. And I was, why isn't this working? I can handle it myself. And my dad was trying to say, can I show you how to do it? And, and I kind of said, just leave me alone, I got it. And I watched my dad step back and go, okay. Okay. If you would like to do this on your own, you can do this on your own. C.S. Lewis has a quote in his book, The Great Divorce, where he says, in the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to, to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. See, God loves us enough to respect our free will. So when we reject him, when we suppress the truth, when we ignore how God has revealed himself, when we demand that we have it our own way, when we pretend to be wise, when we're actually acting foolish, God respects us enough to say, okay, you may do what you like. And what that leads to is a process of of unraveling for us personally and more broadly of society and culture as a whole. And it begins with this, broken worship. This is what we just discussed, right? Our hearts are made to worship. We are made in the image of a God who is worthy of worship. And so we will always find something to worship. I've shared this quote before, but I'll share it again. David Foster Wallace says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And if we don't honor and worship God as the only thing truly worthy of worship, we take those creative things and we stop short We find something that's good. We find something that's beautiful, but we don't follow it through to its inevitable end that God has created that thing. And we begin to worship whatever that thing may be, sex or money or power or beauty or whatever it may be. We stop short of the God who has created it. Timothy Keller writes that idolatry, that is the worship of something that's not God, happens when we take good things and make them ultimate things. And if we were made to worship and that worship is broken, that leads to an upward problem. Our relationship upwardly with God is broken. And the upward problem of broken worship leads to the inward problem of broken identity. Here's what Paul writes. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to their nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men commit shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, before we go any further, we cannot cruise through this verse. This is one of the only places in the Old Testament that specifically speaks about homosexuality, same-sex relationships. And it's not a brief mention, but Paul actually goes into detail of what is happening in both male homosexual relationships and female homosexual relationships. And much ink has been spilled, particularly in the last number of decades, discussing, debating, and trying to decipher exactly what it is that Paul's speaking about here. Some researchers say that what he's actually talking about is a practice that was common in Greek and Roman culture called pediastry, where, or where rich people would take their servants and slaves, particularly minors, particularly young boys, and would use them because there was no risk of getting them pregnant. What Paul is referring to here is sexual abuse. And that's perhaps what he's referring to, but other researchers have pointed out that, that there's pagan worship practices that take place in a variety of temples that included homosexual sex as part of what those rituals would have in them. That was a very common thing. And and what Paul is doing here is not actually condemning homosexuality in a loving relationship, but he's actually just condemning, worshiping other gods using homosexual relationships. And many people have taken many interpretations of this text, but regardless of how we try to understand it, of how we try to twist it, of how we try to look at the culture and all those things, the text says what it says. What is Paul's point? is Paul's target LGBTQ plus people? Is he going after people? Is he declaring that homosexuality outside of a male and a female in a heterosexual covenant marriage, that that's the sin that's above all other sins? Because many have rightly pointed out that the church has seemed to treat this particular topic, this particular issue as a sin worse than any other as the ultimate version of being unsavable, unredeemable, unloved by God. One person I remember speaking with explained to me that this passage in Romans is all the evidence we need to tell a homosexual person they are not welcome in our church. They are not welcome to join and participate in worship and desire to follow Jesus alongside us. And what I want to do is read a bit of a lengthier quote from an author named Preston Sprinkle, who runs a uh, group called the Center for Faith and Sexuality, which is an incredible resource on the screen behind me. There's a book he's written called A People to Be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue. And this is a topic far too big to get all the way into right now, but I wanna read these words and how he looks at Romans 1, understands all the views, all the perspectives and what the Bible says. And he writes these words we have to remember the context of Romans one. Paul does not write to condemn gay people. He writes to condemn all people. Reading Romans one without Romans two to three and the rest of the letter is like walking out of a theater five minutes after the movie has started. Any discussion, any debate, any sermon or lecture on homosexuality that doesn't showcase the scandalous grace that he beams from the rest of Romans is itself a scandalous disregard of the gospel. Until we find our own self-worth in Jesus, until we cling to his righteousness and not our own, until we pry every log from our eyes down to the last splinter, until we assault every species of judgmentalism and hypocrisy that lurks in the corners of our own pharisaical hearts, until we trumpet the majesty of the cross and triumph the vacant tomb above all our good deeds, And until we pummel the insidious notion that we straight people are closer to God than gay people over there, until we do these things, we will never view homosexuality the way that God does. What you need to understand is what Paul is doing here. His primary purpose is not to specifically target gay people. It is to condemn all people under the power of sin. His, his goal is not to demonstrate that one sin is wrong above all others, but rather that the natural way that God has created, the desire that God has for creation has been broken, has been marred by the sin of the world and in our hearts. But that is no more true of a homosexual person than it is of you or I or anyone else. The problem is not just broken sexuality in this one way. The problem is broken identity that looks for purpose and meaning in fleeting pleasure that's given by sex, regardless of who that sexual partner is, whether that pleasure is chased after with a partner of the same sex or the opposite sex, or on a phone or a computer screen with pornography, or in a lusty romance novel, whatever it looks like to pursue meaning out of sex is a form of broken identity. Augustine famously wrote so much of how we understand theology today, but walked through a massive amount of sexual brokenness if you read about his life. He famously quipped in a prayer talking about his sexual sin, Lord, give me chastity and temperance, but not yet. Later on, he would go on to write this. My sin was this, that I looked for pleasure and beauty and truth, not in him, but in myself and in his other creatures and the search led me instead to pain and confusion and error. We cannot find the ultimate ends of pleasure, beauty, and truth in ourselves or in anyone else sexually or otherwise. And so our call today is not to fight and argue and bicker about what should be legal and who should be allowed to attend church and who God loves and what sin is worse than other sin. Our wrath is unhelpful and unnecessary. Leave that to God. Your wrath, your anger, your judgment, your making sure that your stance is known is not changing anyone's heart. God does not need you to be his security guard. That is why Paul carries on to show us that while it's sexuality that he specifically uses to flesh out this point, none of us are exempt from the next reality of a brokenness in sin and our identity creates in us. And that's a broken life. Verse 28, because they did not think it was worthwhile to acknowledge God, God has delivered them over or gave them up to a corrupt mind so that they do not do what is right. They're filled with unrighteousness, with evil, with greed, with wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors or creators of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things should be condemned to death, that they deserve to die, they not only do them, but they applaud others who practice them. See, it's easy for us to take a Romans 1 type passage and go, their sin over there, that's the problem. What's wrong with the world? Somebody who sins in a different way than I do. It's easy to get behind Paul's words in verses 26 and 27 and ignore the way he calls each one of us out in verses 28 and 29. But the reality is that broken worship and broken identity will always lead to a broken life. No matter who you are or what that broken life might look like, the upward and inward issue will always lead to outward issues. It will impact our relationship, not only with God, but with others. Greed, what's your relationship with money like? Envy, when was the last time you visited a friend's house and were jealous of what they had? Were jealous of the size of their home? Were jealous of the vacation they told you about taking? Murder, you go, oh, no, I've never murdered anyone. When was the last time you hated someone? Jesus says you've murdered them in your heart. Strife, wouldn't it be nice if there was no strife in the world? but each one of us knows what that's like gossip. There's a sin none of us really care to deal with. I've yet to have many people come to me and say, I'm really struggling with the sin of gossip. Lots of people come and they confess sexual sin or confess what they're struggling with or doubts or this or that. Not many people are are coming by my office or wanna grab coffee and say, I struggle with gossip, arrogance and violence, not only in action, but in tone in the way that we speak about people. Proud and boastful. And then Paul gets even more vague. He says things like untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. There's no one who hasn't been like that. There's no one who hasn't had a bad day or forgot to eat lunch or got a bad sleep and hasn't been untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. If you're wondering what's wrong with the world, here's the bad news it's not out there. It's you, it's me. It's not somebody else's fault, it's ours. C.S. Lewis quips, we laugh at honor. Then we are shocked to find traitors in our midst. Paul says, we don't just do these things, we applaud and we wink and we stop caring about others who do. We treat sin as minor. We wink at it, we pretend like it doesn't really matter. We view sin through our own lens and we get really good at spotting other people's issues and ignoring our own. And when we suppress the truth and act as if God is either non-existent or so far off that he doesn't really care about what I'm doing, things fall apart. Broken worship leads to broken identity, leads to a broken life. Our issues upward will always create issues inward, will always create issues outward. But here's the hope. Here's the hope of the book of Romans. This is just the first five minutes of the movie. This is just the starting point. This is the bad news that paves the way for the good news of the gospel. Paul at the beginning of Romans writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Not because of God's wrath not because of God's anger, not because of how broken the world is. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? For, he writes, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This passage that we've looked at today, is not a happy one. It's heavy, it's hard to hear, and it hurts us. But here's the reality that you and I can put our hope in today. If sin is our sickness, Christ is our cure. That is what the gospel is about that there is deeply bad news. We are sick. We are in desperate need of a savior. But the hope today, my friends, whether for the first time, or whether remembering for the millionth time, is that the brokenness and the sickness in your soul, that it is not fatal, that there is a cure. That Christ has come. Jesus himself said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. My friends, the invitation today is to acknowledge and accept the reality of our sickness, but to find great hope in the blood of Christ shed on the cross and in the power of his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you that you are good and that you are holy and that your wrath does not come from a place of moodiness, that you are not just getting emotional and angry at us for no reason, but God, we understand that there is brokenness in the world and that you will not stand idly by the evil that is out there or the evil that is within us. And so God today, we rest on the grace that we are saved, not by our own works, but by the work of Jesus. We praise you, Lord, because you have saved us. We celebrate today that your blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness and that we are made new. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. Form us, change us, help us to be free from the lies that we have believed. We pray all these things in your precious name, Lord. Amen.